How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has held down the splendor of Israel. He has held it down from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. Horn being a symbol for strength. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain. All who were pleasing to the eye, he has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed feasts and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has handed over to the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed feast. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around the daughter of Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. Her gates have sunk into the ground. Their bars he has broken and destroyed. Her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like wounded men in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for. We have lived to see it. The Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and consider whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? 
Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and maidens have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. As you summoned to a feast day, so you summoned against me terrors on every side. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those I cared for and reared, my enemy has destroyed. I don't know about you, that, that passage actually breaks my heart. Um, when, I, when I've been reading through it this week, uh, some of the images in there are probably a bit close to home. Um, but also, there's some, there's some pretty powerful things in there um, about the day of the Lord's anger. And um, I hope as we, we come to this that you do develop that sense of feeling for God's people and, and for the church today as well, because um, it's pretty heartbreaking when we see people living away from God, when we see people who are under God's judgment. And I think it's a fairly good motive if we have a broken heart for the world and for a church that is failing to actually go and do things, to go and speak God's words of healing, to, to, to bring God to those situations. So I do pray you let remain untouched. Um, I, I'm going to put a little safety warning right at the beginning, okay? Um, especially if you're kind of fairly new to the faith. Um, there's some bits in here which you may want to talk about and ask questions about. A, a God of anger is a fairly uncomfortable God sometimes. Um, if you go home with questions which you fester and mull on, um, that wouldn't be helpful. So if you do want to come and speak to me or Neil or any of the elders after, um, I would really appreciate you doing that, um, especially if I go a bit quick over a bit and you're like, whoa, hang on a sec. Um, that would be really, really good. Hopefully, the, the kids' talk, though, gives you a bit of a, a message about um, consequences and how you need consequences if warnings are to be effective. Or, in fact, if, if warnings have been stretched to a point where... It's just ridiculous for people to carry on in, in a behaviour. So uh, I was thinking about this as, as, a, as a dad, and um, I was asking myself, well, when, when, when do warnings end? When do you have to act? And, and with Zach, I, I'm sure a few of you have had um, a fairly common... He's up there. He's quite cute. Um, he's also evil. Um, because he loves plugs. He loves plugs and electrical gadgets. And despite repeated warnings... Not to touch, because we know as parents that if he sticks his finger in a plug, it's going to hurt. Despite repeated warnings not to, he's always trying to do that. And he's also developed a new like, habit and kind of technique now for avoiding um, like, the seriousness of warnings. He has two tactics. Tactic number one is called the tongue sticking out. So you, you hold him and you say, Zachary, James, Harris, this is serious stuff. And he goes like this, which makes it fairly hard to continue the kind of righteous anger of a parent, especially when you say to him, Zachary James Harris, say, sorry. And he goes, hello. Uh, the second thing, which is my personal favorite, and Claire can vouch, this is true. He pretends to be asleep. It's true. So... When he knows he's in trouble, he'll run over to the sofa and he'll lie like this, like that. And you'll go, Zachary, James, Harris. And he goes, and I, this tree goes, woo, woo. <laughs> Deliberately pretending that what you have to say is so uninteresting to him that he has fallen to sleep. He's two years old. It's a worrying time. But... But, despite his little tactics and techniques, I do still punish him. I do. Because it's not loving not to punish. 
It's not loving not to punish. If I have given warnings and I have told him the right way to go and I have modelled it in my lifestyle, it is not loving not to punish. Because he will end up either electrocuting himself in the plug or never getting a girlfriend because his tongue remains stuck out (laughs) for the rest of his life. But you see, children find it hard to be punished, don't they? Children find it hard to be punished because they may not totally understand why you're doing it. I don't think Zach quite yet knows the theory of electricity and how it is piped into my house. He just knows there is a white box with buttons on and he loves buttons. And in other cases, we let him play with buttons, but those buttons, there's something different about them. He doesn't know. And you know, as we read Lamentations, there's a part of it where I think the people are a bit like children who are in the midst of punishment and haven't seen the benefit, the coming day of the Lord. And that's why they're crying out so deeply, so heartfelt. Because I know that when I put Zach into his bed, he shouts, Daddy! And then when that doesn't work, Mommy! Because he's trying to play us off against each other. But when I punish Zach, because I'm a loving father, it is always, always for his benefit. Always for his benefit. My aim is to change him into a man who follows instructions and who lives a long and precious life, which he enjoys thoroughly. And I think God works the same with punishment. And it's easy this morning, if you just read this without knowing a little bit about the whole story of how God is so faithful to his people through repeated mistakes, it would be easy to say, God's a bit harsh. But he is not. He is right, and it is good that he acts in this way. And I'm going to try and uh, kind of show you a bit this morning. So I guess the kind of first thing to be thinking through is this idea that Lamentations is written, I think, as a child would write during punishment, but before they've seen the resolution. Um, I'll tell you a bit about that later on, but hopefully that kind of sets it up. So we're going to uh, look through this um, together. And there are some fairly hard words and and things to look at this morning. And I pray that we would uh, be open to, to hearing them. And... The first thing is this. Did you notice that in verse 1 to 5 of, of chapter 2, the language is of total punishment, of total punishment. In verse 1, you get this term, that he hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth, a total just humiliation of a city, a holy place. In verse 2, it talks about being swallowed up, torn down. In verse 3, God cuts off every horn, the symbol of strength and power. God removes it totally. Jerusalem, the nation, are totally powerless because of God's total punishment. Verse 4, it talks about all who were there. In verse 4, like an enemy, he has strung his bow, his right hand is ready like a foe, he has slain all who were. Total punishment. In verse 5, he has swallowed up Israel, all of it. God's punishment for sin is total. Is total. And I would say that it's easy to kind of start trying to just think, well, how is this about me? But Lamentations is about a nation. It's about God's people together under judgment and under punishment. And I don't know really what that kind of makes you think, this idea of total punishment. But, you know, with Zach, if I'm thinking this through with my child, with my child, and you you may notice in, in Lamentations, Jerusalem is referred to often as a daughter there's a personification of Jerusalem, this, this sense of relationship. With Zach, if I let some things go, just let him occasionally touch the plug or stick his tongue into my Xbox or something like that. You see, it's not good. That's not me being a loving dad because I only punish some. 
Total judgment is what is needed. If heaven is to be perfect and pure, you cannot let in any hint of sin or sickness. It, it kind of makes sense to me. But this is hard, and it should get you to question, well, what has happened? What has happened that this judgment, this total punishment of Israel has happened and has come to these people? What has happened? Secondly, it should make you kind of question, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is this? Now, if I punish Zach, my boy, and I'm going to refer to this relationship quite a lot today because it helps me kind of understand it. Yeah? If, if I punish Zach in an unfeeling kind of way, in a cruel, distant kind of go to your room kind of way, there is no benefit to the child. He will learn to be embittered by me and will learn to be bitter himself. Discipline has to be closed. And you may think to yourself, before you start questioning, look at verses 6 to 8. We can see that this is painful for God to do. It's painful for God to punish in this way. Verse 6 to 8. And, and you'll see this in two reasons. One, because this affects him himself as he punishes his people. Verse 6. Just follow this with me. God has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed feasts and her Sabbaths, which are all about him. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest, the people who are meant to be drawing people back to himself. Verse 7, the Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has handed over to the enemy the walls of her palaces, the relationship again. Can you see, this is painful to God, because in doing this, there is hurt that he is himself bearing. And it foreshadows a time where he will carry and bear all the hurt of all the world for all of time. And we're going to see that as we go through Lamentations now, as we rise towards Lamentations 3, you see this figure appearing of a single person who will bear the hurts of a nation, which includes us. And you may be sitting there at this time going, I don't understand what he is saying. What I'm trying to say is that God punished totally, but he didn't do it from a distance. It broke his heart that his people had turned against him so many times. It implies this relationship, this talking about her like a daughter. It implies a relationship which means that he could not be distant. My challenge to you this morning as a church is if as Christians together you are living a life against God, it is hurting him. Not in the weak sense of hurt like we experience. He is perfect and all-powerful. But if we desensitise God in any way, if we make him a God that doesn't punish sin and who doesn't care, I can do whatever I want. Does that make sense? If I, if I think to myself that God doesn't care about me, And doesn't punish my sin. I can live however I want to live. And that's the thing about warnings. Warnings are there to pull you back. To say my people come back to me. Experience the blessings you had. Because you have to remember that this is written at a time. After they'd enjoyed the blessings of the promised land. This is written at a time where despite God dragging his people out of Egypt totally by his own power, despite the fact that he bore with them in the desert when they were saying, I actually preferred being a slave, at least we had pots of meat to eat back there, which they didn't, they were imagining. God said, I will still bear with you, my people. Have you forgotten already how I brought you out of Egypt? Despite the fact that 
when God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses and he walks down the hill, the people are already dancing around a golden calf they have made. God bore with his people. And yes, there was punishment in the desert. A whole generation who became unfaithful to God. But still there were blessings. God cured them from snake bites, produced water out of a rock, brought them to a place where they could see the promised land. Said to Moses, your job is done. Joshua, lead them on. I will fight every battle for you. He takes his people into the promised land. They fight battles, sometimes on their own strength, which they lose. God had a 100% record, a bit like Man United at the moment, sadly. Every battle that God told them to fight, he won on their behalf. Nations fled before them. The, the reign of God was glorious. Other nations were blessed through them. The promises God had made to Abraham were totally, totally unveiled to God's people. They enjoyed this land flowing with milk and honey. They enjoyed his presence. They had a temple in their city where God dwelt with them and yet they still rebelled against him. And that is why judgment comes. After all those warnings and promises of judgment, God says enough is enough. If you won't behave and believe because I am good to you, something else has to happen because you are on a path to disaster because you, you treat me like just one other God that you can follow. And that is not the case because all other gods are false before our one true God, yes? That is why judgment comes at this point. And if you still think God is harsh, then I'm sorry, I disagree. But it still breaks his heart to do it. If you don't believe, I want to read this, and you you don't have to turn to it. This is from 2 Kings 20, verse 14 to 19. I'm going to say this one. This is my favourite character in the whole of the Bible. The whole of the Bible. This is a message to a king called Hezekiah. King Hezekiah had been sick, okay, and God had miraculously made him well. And uh, Babylon, who were the people that eventually come and bring disaster onto God's people, uh, gave him a gift. They brought some envoys along. He said, have a gift. Well done for getting better. But secretly they were spying out the land to see if they could capture it. In, In 2 Kings 20, verse 14, it says this. Then Isaiah, the prophet, went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The warning's there very clearly, yeah? King Hezekiah has allowed other nations, other gods, other cultures to come in. But King Hezekiah is an optimist. And (laughs) King Hezekiah is my favourite character because he says this, "The The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, replied Hezekiah, for at least it won't happen in my lifetime. Genius! He doesn't care about God's judgment. Because it's not going to happen in his lifetime. But the point I'm trying to make is, that's a fairly clear warning that Babylon are coming, is it not? God has been good and faithful to his people, saying a time is coming. There are plenty more I could read. A key idea, if you want to challenge you about this morning, just, just number one, is that nothing escapes from God's judgment if it is right for God to judge. Nothing. 
the destruction of his place by the Babylonians was total. We read that ourselves. We've seen it in terms of all the, the, the picture language of the poetry. Nothing. Nothing. And that means that if you are living in a position against God currently, you will not escape judgment. And I don't say that with a happy heart. I don't say that from a distance. I say that from the same position. I say that to my son, Zach. Come back to God, for nothing escapes God's judgment. And it is right that nothing escapes God's judgment. Because it means that when we stand in glory together, we have no reason to be ashamed of the past or feel guilt for it anymore. For everything has been dealt with. Come back to God, return to him, my people. If as a church, as a Christian life, you have softened your God to someone who doesn't care about you because he does, or you have softened God to someone who doesn't punish sin, he does, come back to God this morning and say, God, once again I come before you. You are a faithful God who forgives. Please bring me in. That's the Father's punishment. A bit more brief. The people's response in in verse 10, if you can go back to Lamentations 2, verse 10. This sign of kind of collective humbling, let's just read it. Uh, Lamentations 2, verse 10. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They've sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. It shows a sign, I think, of better times ahead. And you may disagree with me, but can you see that this punishment has finally brought people to a position of humility, where once they said, I am God, I control my life, and I will choose who I worship, and I will choose poorly, now they just come. And I'm not saying that next week we all turn up with sackcloth on, and our faces all ashed up. The outward thing is in one sense unimportant. It shows that something in the heart has changed from these people. And to be blunt, having told you a very brief and very fast-spoken history of the Israelite and the Jewish Jewish people, it's a shame that it takes this, isn't it, to to uh, to humble them before their God. Sitting in a broken city with people dead in the streets, hungry and and in famine because their city is is surrounded by an enemy. It's a shame, but it's it's a glimpse, I think, of something better to head. This total response is what God is needing. Not because he is a mean, distant God saying, bow before me, but because he knows that any hint of me or my pride gets in the way. The people's response is total. It's painful as well. Verse 11 to 13. This is just kind of a little bit of a glimpse. Okay, verses 11 to 13. My eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out to the ground. Lives in, I mean, verse 12, the lives of a baby are being away in a mother's arm is, is a pretty painful picture. In verse 13, this is the key bit, your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? But you see, that question here, that question here shows that something better is coming because at least they're asking the question, who can deal with my pain? Who can deal with my failure? In Lamentations 3, 27 to 32, it says, It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence. And this is the key bit. For the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Talking about one who will come to heal the wound. Jesus Christ, foretold in a book that is hard to read because it is full of God's judgment, glimpses this Jesus who will come to heal a wound who is deep and painful. 
You know, these verses, I think, are a massive warning to ourselves. A massive warning to ourselves. Because the, the, the Jewish people, the nation, thought that they were going to be safe because they were God's nation. They'd been chosen. They'd been picked. They'd been set up in this promised land. They'd built a wonderful city around them. They thought with this city and with these walls, nothing can come to, help, uh, to affect us and bring us low again. They were relying, though, on the stuff that they had built. They were relying on their culture, things of human hands. They were relying on the fact that they had a temple, a building in the centre of their city where they believed that God dwelt, but built by human hands. They were relying on things which they had done to save them, as if a temple could hold our God. And yes, God was pleased to dwell in the temple, but he wasn't just there. He wasn't shut in to be let out at the ceremonial time. The key idea for this response bit, guys, is that nothing built by human hands can save you. Whether it's your good deeds, your good acts, whether it's because you belong to a great church like this, whether it's because you come from a family line going back years where you've been Baptist and since the beginning of Baptist times in 1207. I don't know if that's when it began, but it sounds a good date. Nothing built by human hands can save you. Nothing can escape God's judgment, but nothing built by human hands can save you. The first response many people have when they hear that judgment is coming is to try and save yourself. You cannot. You cannot. Only God can save. And that's why in Lamentations you see this glimpse of a coming Messiah. A chosen one. A chosen one. Do you know what I I love? And this is really near the end now. So Jerusalem was, was completely ruined, completely ruined by the Babylonians. Okay. And it's not that God had lost. It's not that the Babylonian gods were like bigger and tougher and they kind of took God out and then did their business. God was in charge of it all. God then used the next biggest power, Persia, under Cyrus, to bring his people back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And Nehemiah, the prophet you may read about in the Bible, gets all the priests and all the accountants to get their hands dirty and they build this wall up. And it's great again. And, and Nehemiah makes this city again, this civilization which love and worship God. Do you know what I love about this? God knew that Jerusalem was where his son would be crucified. And yet he allows it to be rebuilt. That's pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? Because if he'd left it kind of wasted and desolate, who knows what could have happened? But you see, this warning and judgment God knew was part of a mighty plan to save that was going to be fulfilled in this Jesus coming to this place to die for these people. And I think that's that's pretty mind-blowing because that means I don't rely on things that I have myself built, a faith I have created, a church I belong to. I rely only on a God who could take kingdoms and powers and principalities and use them for his glory. I'm going to rely on a God that could take a city Demolish it totally, rebuild it again. Demolish it totally in AD 70, when still the Jewish nation didn't realise that Jesus was the Messiah. The Romans destroy it again. Lamentations is still used today by the Jewish nation when they remember AD 70 and the Babylonian disaster in Jerusalem. They still use it today because they haven't grasped that this Jesus is what it's all about. It is not about following a law with your own strength. It is not about saving yourself by good works. It is not about belonging to a church. It is not about saying my parents are Christians. It is not about that stuff. As if human hands could save you from the total judgment of God. The only thing that can save you from the total judgment of God is the total grace of God. 
Yes? And that's what's lovely here in Lamentations, that you see these glimpses coming back. This holy place would become a place where the work is done. That's what it's about. And I know that I'm making a lot of noise. And I know that you're probably sitting there going, I've lost it now. But still, hopefully you get the fact that in the middle of a lament, you see God saying, my children, my plans for you are greater than you could ever imagine or come up with yourself. So stop making plans to save yourself. To finish, I don't know if you know, Lamentations is is written in in an acrostic. How many of you know what an acrostic is? It's not cross-stitch. They they didn't cross-stitch it. An acrostic. It means that they they take the letters of the Hebrew alphabet for every kind of little section. Okay, and so you've got like Aleph is the first one, and then Bet. That's where it ends. I only learnt two. And they write it, they write it through. And so for our conclusion, our application this morning, I'm going to give you an acrostic. The title for this sermon in the end, not consequences, that was all right, I said was the dangers of global warning. The dangers of global warning is that with warning comes consequence, and that will either drive you away from God or drive you to God. That's the dangers of global warning. The, the Jewish nation had been warned globally that judgment was coming, and yet they chose to ignore the warning. The danger of a warning is that something has to be done about it. You either listen to the warning or you don't. That's still the challenge with us with God's day. But here's a little acrostic for you as a bit of an action plan as we think about lamentations. Hear the warning. This is heat. Global warning, heat. You get the idea. It's not that clever, but hopefully it'll help you remember. Heat. Hear the warning. My friends this morning, the Jewish nation had a history that was far more glorious than the Baptist church. They'd been chosen from slavery and taken to a promised land. They'd had a city built for them through God's direct instruction, and yet God could still bring them low because they strayed from him. As a church, if we allow ourselves to stray from him, if we do that without a fight or a whimper, I believe judgment is coming. Different to the judgment of the Jewish people, because we have Jesus and we look back through that. But still, still. Hear the warning. In Lamentations 2, verse 17, the Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the strength, the horn of your foes. We don't want that to happen. Because the church is is the way we work in our world today for the glory of Christ. Hear the warning. Community, though, begins with individuals. If you allow sin to fester in your life, which affects your church life, if you allow little bitterness to dwell between you and relationship in a church, something is going wrong. If you put church where God should be, something is going wrong. Hear the warning from Lamentations to come back to God. Secondly, engage. Engage. In verse 18 and 19, and I guess the whole purpose of Lamentations was that the whole of the Jewish nation could engage together in collective grief about what had happened. They still use this today. The reason it's written in poetic form, in this acrostic with the, the, the rhyme it has, which doesn't come across in the English, but apparently in the Hebrew has a kind of a limping kind of, kind of gait, is that it allows people to come collectively together to engage in grief for each other. I think in the West we are too comfortable and too uncaring about a church globally that often is in mad amounts of pain. If you think some of the descriptions of what happened in Jerusalem are horrific, they are happening today in nations where churches are burnt to the ground with pastors inside. They are still happening today in places where Christian leaders are arrested for no reason other than the fact that they teach Christ crucified. And yet we sit here and go, well, I'll pray about that occasionally. 
We should engage globally with a church because they are our brothers and sisters. And you should inform yourself about a church that is suffering, in many cases because they are living it louder and bolder than we are. Hear the warning. Turn back to God. Don't allow that sin to fester. Engage in the global church. Second, thirdly, attack sin. I'll be blunt with you. What was the reason that children were lying dead in the streets in Jerusalem? What was the reason that young men and women were slain by the, the sword? What were the reason for it? What was the reason? Sin. Sin leads to death. The fair payment for sin is death. And yet, why do I allow it to remain in my life then? Why do I think it is somehow something pleasant and pleasurable? Attack sin, for it leads to death. Attack it with all your might. Give it to God time and time again, because sin does not escape God's judgment. It doesn't. As Christians, don't allow it to be there. You are called to something different. Why would you want to live in ruins when you can live in a promised land? It makes no sense. And lastly, thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus, because this judgment here will never happen to us in the same way, in the same way as a people, because Jesus has come, and sin can be dealt with. But judgment is coming. I'm not saying judgment is not coming. Judgment is coming. But I just want you to see, this is the last cross-reference as we finish today, um, in Luke. Luke 13. Luke 13, just turn to this with me. Luke 13, verse 34 and 35. And this is the way I want to finish. Because there is another time where God comes to Jerusalem. And he sees it once again as an unbelieving nation. And he sees it once again having strayed from his plans and his purposes. Jesus himself, God come to earth, fully man, fully God, stands over Jerusalem looking down at this holy city that God had graciously allowed to be rebuilt by using Persia to release his people back. Mighty work in history. As Jesus comes, what's he going to do? Is he going to destroy it again? He's got the power to. If he can calm a storm, surely he can wave the sea across. If he can command angels, surely an angelic army could sweep down and destroy this city once again. Let's read his words in Luke 13, and it echoes why we know God cares. Luke 13, uh, 34 says this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing Look, your house is left to you desolate, reminding them of a time. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you recognise who Jesus is, they're not going to get it. But Jesus did that, saying that, going to the cross. Because God loves you, deeply and personally, as a people, as a church. And so I urge you to respond. That's how God viewed Jerusalem the last time. He said, how I long to gather you up. How I long to gather you up. I know there's been a lot in there, guys. Hopefully that's a bit of a challenge, yeah? Nothing escapes God's judgment. So go to God. It's not that he's looking to punish you. Nothing built by human hands can save you. Stop trying yourself. Come back to this God who longs to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And who died in the same place that God had broken and built up again. Because that was God's plan to save